Hello, hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because we think that helps us draw more power out of the scriptures and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein. And in this, uh, I would call it a short cast, but it probably won't be super short. It'll be medium cast, uh, but it's just me. So that's why we use that phrase. Um, we're going to cover the book of Micah, which is a really important and wonderful book. Uh, to give you kind of a bullet point list of what we're going to do before we jump in, we're going to look at who Micah is, when he prophesies, what he says to the house of Israel, what he says to the house of Judah, the, the specific sins he accuses them of, and look at how those sins are something that we struggle with as well. The punishments that will come as a result, we're going to look at the, the core verses where he tells us what God really wants from us. What is the answer to all of this and what he really wants from us? We're going to compare some of his prophecies to some that are fairly identical in Isaiah and discuss uh, the, the, how that might be the case and the, the couple different things that he does with them. And we're also going to look at the hope that he holds out in the end. So with all of that in mind, let's jump in and start to cover Micah. So Micah is one of several prophets who warns the people of the impending destruction of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He overlaps for the most part with Isaiah. So he comes just after Amos. He may overlap with Hosea a little bit. Um, Isaiah is uh, someone who prophesies during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And uh, Micah doesn't it doesn't list Uzziah as uh, someone he prophesied during his reign, although we know it's just right at the end of Uzziah that, that Isaiah prophesies. But it, other than that, it's the same list as we get with Isaiah. It's uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So they are largely contemporary. Isaiah seems to start before Micah and go until after Micah. He has a longer ministry, but most of their ministries are contemporary with each other. Um, Micah is from a little town uh, called. Um, Morasheth Gath, which is probably not that far from Philistine Gath. It's um, it's in between Tekoa, where Amos's hometown is, and uh, Lachish, where we know that they're they're being wicked at the time. Uh, and Micah, like Isaiah, is trying to get the people of the northern kingdom to repent, or they'll be destroyed. And he's warning them of that impending destruction, and he probably sees that destruction. He also is warning the southern kingdom. It's not clear if he continues to prophesy up through when they are nearly destroyed and you have the miraculous salvation of Jerusalem or if his ministry, and I would guess his life ends before that. Uh, it's not fully clear. We know that his, mic, that his message was uh, received a mixed reception, and we know that mostly from the book of Jeremiah, because in Jeremiah, when he prophesies against what the king is doing and against what's going to happen in warrants of destruction, uh, and they want to kill Jeremiah, there are some leaders or rulers who come to my, uh, Jeremiah's rescue and they say, look, Micah did this in the days of Hezekiah and people wanted to kill him, but they didn't kill him because they knew they needed to listen to his word. So we shouldn't kill Jeremiah either. So that's how we know that uh, Micah had a mixed reception. Some people really didn't like what he was saying and wanted to, to kill him or do bad things to him as a result. And uh, but he was spared, and, and I would guess that uh, Hezekiah and others received his message well. So those are some fun things that we can learn about the background of Jeremiah or of Micah. Uh, I think some some uh, worthwhile stuff to, to think through. Um, so now let's jump in 
and we're going to start at chapter one. Chapter one is the chapter that is, for the most part, against Samaria. And by talking about Samaria, they're meaning the entire northern kingdom, although we will address Samaria specifically. But the entire northern kingdom and his warning about what is going to happen to them. And he tells them it's going to be pretty bad. I tell some in verse four, the mountains shall be molten and they'll be cleft and and so on. Um, Let's start in verse five. For the transgression of Jacob is all this and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? So he's warning that in the, the capital cities, they're doing some of the most wicked things. And we'll see as we go along some of those things that they're doing. We'll we'll highlight those in specific Uh, As we go along, but here's the warning of what's going to happen. Verse six of chapter one. Therefore, I will make Samaria as an heap of a field. So the city, the capital city is just going to become a field uh, of ruins and as plantings of a vineyard. So it's just going to be like a place you would plant crops, not a city. And I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley. And I will discover the foundations thereof, meaning that when it's destroyed, it's going to be so destroyed that the houses and all the buildings are going to be knocked over and they'll tumble down into the valley and all that will be left is the foundations. And by the way, if you were to go to the ruins of Samaria today, that's exactly what you see is the foundations and uh, everything else has been knocked down. Verse seven, and all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces. So this is part of what we figure out uh, is going on, that there's a lot of idolatry. Uh, and also all the hires thereof shall be burned with fire. So the hires, uh, we'll get some ideas uh, later that this may have some reference to hires of the harlot. It will have some references to that later. So maybe it's talking about some immorality. But I think uh, we'll also see even more references to um, people trying to oppress others for gain and often not paying good enough wages, but themselves being overpaid and that kind of a thing. Uh, and that's part of what he is upset about. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate, for she gathered it of the higher of an harlot. So this is where we we get that. And it's hard to know if it's actually talking about immorality or if this is this comparison that we get so often to their idolatry being like playing the harlot against God. And they shall return to the higher of an harlot. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. So this is Micah saying he, he's not happy about the terrible things that are going to happen. Uh, This is painful to see the destruction that is going to come to Samaria and to the northern kingdom. The destruction that's coming is serious and it's painful to watch. We can kind of end this with the end verse of this chapter, verse 16, make thee bald and pull thee for thy delicate children. So you're going to be shaved, which is something that often happened as you were taken away as as a slave. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle for the end. And this is probably not eagle, but probably vulture is a better translation for that and we get the idea a lot of vultures have no feathers on their head so that as they eat the carrion their feathers don't get messed up anyway um uh enlarge thy baldness is the eagle for they are gone into captivity from them so this is the prophecy that captivity is coming and it's it's going to be bad so we continue this we're going to start to move into jerusalem as we go along but the here at the beginning it seems to still be israel or at least both groups um, chapter two, woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. So this seems to be 
uh, talking about that, that they are at the point where they are trying to, as they're laying, going to bed, and as they're waking up, they're thinking, they're planning the bad things they can do. And we're going to look at what those are in just a moment. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hands. So they've, they've thought, what can I, uh, they're, they're coming, they're scheming. They're scheming and coming up with these plans. And we're going to see that a lot of it is how they can take advantage of other people to make themselves uh, more powerful or more wealthy. And so they scheme and then they get up and they start doing it because they're able to. Verse two, and they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So you have a couple of things that this seems to be making reference to. Sometimes fields and houses and these things that they want are taken by violence. We have actually Jezebel does that for her husband, the, the king, uh, as uh, they kill Naboth to take his, his uh, vineyard. Uh, there are probably other people who did similar things, but some of this may be the kind of violence you bring upon a person as you you take advantage of them financially so that you can claim their fields and their houses and you have them uh, hauled off to be slaves. And that's a kind of violence as well. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. So you can see part of the issue here. The whole household is being oppressed and you get the idea that they are losing um, their land and their houses in a way that they don't pass on to their descendants, which was a big part of the law of Moses and how Moses set things up, that land would not go outside of a family's uh, possession, that they would always maintain it. But that's being taken away and, and uh, short-circuited by these people who are designing ways to accrue more land and wealth and possessions for themselves <clears throat> rather than helping others. Therefore, I find this ironic in verse three, you can see the irony the Lord is using here. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, against this family, so the family of Israel, because the, the wealthy and the leaders of Israel are scheming and devising in their beds how they can take away land from others, God is, is saying against this family, all of Israel, do I devise an evil? And by that evil, it, it, the better translation would be some, some bad things, right? From which you shall not remove your necks, meaning you're not going to get out of it. Neither shall you go haughtily, for this time is evil, or in the other words, this time bad things are going to happen to you. Uh, and so he's he's telling them if that's if you're going to devise how to take away land from people, you're going to find I'm even better at it than you are, and I am going to remove you from your promised land because of what you're doing. Now let's go down to verse six, and we're going to see. Um, a theme that we talked about last week in Amos that uh, who predates barely um, uh, Micah. So probably like Micah's just like right after Amos. And so that things haven't changed. Uh, and in verse six, <clears throat> sorry, in verse six, it says, prophesy ye not say they to them that prophesy. So they're saying to people that prophesy, don't prophesy and they shall not prophesy to them. Uh, so, and the this is a little bit of a tricky translation, and the word is uh, for prophesy is really like um, kind of dripping at the mouth, but it's about prophecy. So the idea is that people who are like Micah, who are just coming forth with the things of God, they're saying, "Don't say them, don't give them to us. We don't want them." And we talked about that last week. The idea that when prophets tell us truths that go against what we want to think or believe, because we've been conditioned by the world then we tell them, please don't say that. You have your place and it's over here and it's not coming and crossing what I'm saying. 
that will only accept them as a prophet if they have the same things to say that the world has to say, which is just not going to happen because God and the world have different viewpoints and prophets speak God's word. So they ask them to not prophesy and then they will not take shame. Oh, thou that art named the house of Jacob. Is the spirit of the Lord straightened, which means made made narrower or shorter? Uh, and he's asking, is, is my am I suddenly being limited? Are these his doings being God's doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? So he's saying it's a little bit like when Nephi says the wicked take the truth to be hard, right? That if they don't like what God is saying, it's because they've got a problem. That those who are upright will appreciate his words. That's something for us to keep in mind. If you're struggling with what the prophets are teaching, then we need to introspect, not to have a problem with them, but start to look at what we need to change. Let's jump down to verse 10. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. This reminds me of President Nelson's talk in this last general conference about where we really find rest. And it's not from the ideas of the world, but from the ideas of God. So leave the, he's asking us, leave the uh, things of the world, these, these schemings to aggrandize yourself, leave them behind. Uh, that's not where you'll find your rest. It is polluted. It shall destroy you even with a sore destruction. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of his people. So you see what they're saying? Uh, and we get uh, the same idea in the Book of Mormon, where we're being taught, when people tell you, go and do all the wicked stuff you want, you accept them as a prophet. If they say, yeah, it's up to the person. Do what makes you feel good. Morality is relative. Uh, marriage is relative. Uh, what is? There's no real right and wrong. Just do what makes you feel good. We say, okay, that's the kind of prophet. And if someone says, this is right, this is wrong, we say, no, no, that you hate. Who are you to tell us what's right and wrong? We don't have to live the way you think we should live. right? And so we accept false prophets as prophets and reject true prophets. Now note what he says in verse 12. I will surely assemble of Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. So there's hope. Destruction is going to come to much of Israel, but God will, he'll preserve a remnant. This is the same kind of uh, imagery we get again and again in Isaiah, Micah's contemporary. He'll preserve a remnant and gather that remnant. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flux of Basra is in Edom, but it's a place where that's known for its vineyards, but also a place where they can gather sheep. As the flock in the midst of their fold, they shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. So they're going to get rid of those. God at some point is going to get rid of all those who have been scattering and persecuting Israel. He'll gather them and all will go well and all will be okay. So we have all these warnings, but there's always the message of hope that goes with them. Let's move on to chapter three. And I said here, I pray you, O heads of Jacob and you princes of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know judgment? So remember, we've talked a number of times about judgment. This is the way of idea of making things right. And in particular, taking those who things are not right for them and helping them become right for them. So the oppressed, the hungry, the poor, uh, the stranger and so on. People who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and his flesh within the cauldron. So this is important. We need to stop and think about this. He is saying it's the job of Israel to, to know what's right and make it right, but they're not doing it. 
And he has this really interesting comparison because this is right when Assyria is coming against them. And Assyria is known for torturing their enemies. Literally, they flay their enemies or pluck their skin off them. They take their flesh off. They, they skin them. They, they would chop off hands and feet and break bones and that kind of a thing. This is what Assyria was known for as they tried to intimidate people. And we have depictions of them doing it to Israelites that they made. This is how they tried to intimidate people. And so this is interesting that I think he is, uh, as he talks about them spiritually taking people or financially uh, taking people when they oppress them and take their houses and their fields from them. Uh, it's like they're playing them and breaking their bones. And he's comparing what they're doing to what they hate about the Assyrians, just to, to make sure they understand the, the seriousness of what they're doing. Verse four, then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. That's very interesting. A number of times Isaiah says the same thing. They'll cry and he won't hear. And a number of times he says, then they'll cry and he will hear. So, for example, one of the times he says that is in Isaiah 58, after he's just after he said that part of the purpose of a fast is to take care of the poor and feed the hungry. That's when God will hear you. But when you are oppressing others, when you're not full of love for others. So when you're full of love for God and others, he hears you. When you are full of love for yourself and not for others, he doesn't hear you. Verse five, thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err. So these false prophets that tell them, do this, do that, and it's all fine. That bite with their teeth and cry peace. And he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Now I find that interesting because in our day, we hear people that are, are prophesying in the name of love and peace, all sorts of things that aren't right. But it sounds good to us because they, they code it in love and peace. And here we have Mike is saying that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to bite you, but they're saying peace, even as they, they take a piece out of you spiritually by biting you. Therefore, night shall be unto you, and you shall not have a vision, and it shall be darkened you. So I think this is about what's happening spiritually, that you shall not divine. You won't be able to see what's happening. You won't hear him, as President Nelson would tell us. And the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them, meaning that the era of prophecy will end because no one, when no one listens to true prophets, the era of prophets ends. <clears throat> then shall the seers be ashamed and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips for there is no answer of God. That's interesting, isn't it? That, that when we don't listen to the prophets, it's, uh, the prophets will be silenced. Now that will happen for Israel. Fortunately, in our day, we know it won't happen that they're truly silenced, but for many people, they will become silenced. People will just stop listening to them, and that silences them. But Micah says, even though this is happening, I, but truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of judgment, and of might, to declare unto Jacob his transgressions, and to Israel his sin. So they're, the, the prophets are being silenced, but some are not. Verse 9, hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment. So he's accusing the people who are not doing what they should to take care of others. Uh, they pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. See, they're, they're building themselves up on the backs of others. The heads thereof judge for reward, so they're not uh, performing justice and judgment the way they should. They're hearing cases, but doing it in a way that will help them. They're the poor come and ask for help, and they don't do that. Instead, they keep things for themselves and so on. 
Um, the priests thereof teach for hire and the prophets thereof divine for money. So all these people who are doing these things, he's accused them of, they're doing it for their own advantage rather than out of love for God and love for each other. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. So they will say, we're not going to get destroyed because we're, we're God's people. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Because they are doing it wrong, but believing God will take care of them. For that very reason, they will be fully destroyed. Now, chapter 4 will sound familiar to you, and this is interesting. Chapter 4, first few verses. In the last days it shall come to pass that in the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it, and many nations shall come, and so on. This is exactly like chapter 2 in Isaiah. A couple little differences, but mostly word for word. Um, and we even get some things that are very similar in verse 3. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Again, that's just like what we have in Isaiah. So the question is, they're contemporary. So the question is, is Isaiah quoting Micah? Is Micah quoting Isaiah? Or are they both quoting someone else? Or did God inspire them both to speak in the same way? And we don't know the answer. And Isaiah sounds very Isaiah-ish, and Micah sounds very Micah-ish. Maybe they're both quoting someone else. We don't know, but clearly it's something that God wanted us to understand, that eventually the truth is established. And we know some of these uh, uh, interpretations are this is about the temple in Salt Lake and so on. Uh, but uh, we know eventually, <clears throat> but we know eventually uh, peace will come. And that's what we can look forward to. Micah follows on with this with some verses different than how Isaiah does, but there are still images of peace. Verse four, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. So the phrase under his vine and under his fig tree is a way of saying like under under your veranda or your cabana. Uh, I mean, it's an image of peace and prosperity. And why will that happen? Well, it's because all people will walk everyone in the name of his God and walk in the name of the Lord or Jehovah, our God forever and ever. That's that's beautiful stuff. And in verse seven, he reminds us that uh, uh, he will make uh, her that halted to the lame uh, a remnant and the remnant is who he will take care of and her that was cast off a strong nation. So the scattered and those who are in trouble, he's going to make of them the Israel that he's always been trying to make. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. Beautiful stuff. We're going to move on and just touch on one verse in chapter five. It's a famous verse. After saying that siege in verse one, siege is going to come upon Israel. Verse two, but thou Bethlehem Ephratah, thou is an Ephratah is a name that was given to the area right uh, around Bethlehem uh, where Rachel died and so on. So uh, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. This is the verse that when Herod Ask the wise men where uh, the ruler of the Jews will be born. This is the verse that tells them Bethlehem. And so he goes and kills the babes in Bethlehem. Uh, this is the uh, a famous verse because of that. I'm impressed that they figured it out. With all the verses in the Old Testament, they looked at this and they found, oh, Bethlehem and sent him there. That's really impressive to me. Uh, let's go down to verse 8. 
And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both tread it down and tear it in pieces and none can deliver. There are a number of ways this can be interpreted. Now, before we talk about that, let's just say this is a significant verse. When Christ comes to the Nephites, he quotes or uh, alludes this verse in 3 Nephi 16, verses 13 through 14, and 3 Nephi 20, verses 16 through 17, and again in 3 Nephi 21, verses 12 through 21. So Christ repeats this verse uh, or refers to it very strongly a number of times. So it's clearly important. Uh, it probably has some military elements. I think it has some other elements that, um, that uh, people who hold the covenant will be strengthened and succeed in a way that goes beyond what those who aren't part of the covenant do and so on. I'm not sure what all ways this should be uh, interpreted, but I think it's worth looking at and thinking about, and I'd encourage you to read it and read those uh, Book of Mormon uh, interpretations of it as well, or, or references to it. Verse 10, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots. So I'm going to, uh, at some point, I'm going to get rid of your all the things you rely on for power and strength. Verse 11, and I will cut off the cities out of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds. So population and against strength. And I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. I'm going to get rid of your idolatrous things or the, the worldly ways that you try and get gain knowledge rather than the godly ways. Verse 13, thy graven images also will I cut off. So all the forms of idolatry that you have. And thy standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. I'm going to get rid of all of that. Verse 14, and I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee, so will I destroy thy cities. He's going to get rid of everything that's unholy from Israel and from Israelite individuals. All right, so now let's move on to chapter 6. Verse 1, hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear, O ye mountains, the Lord's controversy. So this is God raising it's like a court scene, and he is laying an accusation against Israel, and he's calling for witnesses, and the witnesses are the hills and the mountains and so on, and this is his controversy or his accusation. Ye strong foundations of the earth, he wants this, so that's more of the witnesses. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. And here's the, here's the accusation. O oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? Wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. So clearly, he feels like they have abandoned him. And it's as if they're saying, you wearied us and you've done stuff, so we're going to abandon you. And he wants to know why. What have I done? Here is what I have done, he says in verse 4. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So exhibit A of what he's done for them delivers them out of Egypt. Exhibit B is in verse 5 when he uh, Moab, the Malak, the Balak, the king of Moab, wants to destroy them as they're coming into the promised land. But he has Balaam, the son of Beor. Uh, prophesy good for them. And uh, so that Balak doesn't, they're not cursed and Balak doesn't uh, assault them. All right. That's the story that you had in Numbers where the talking donkey and all that kind of thing. Verse six, wherewith shall I come before the Lord? So this is where we get into the crux of uh, really what everything is about here. What Amos, or I mean, Micah and God really wants them to do. So they, they've abandoned him when they, had no reason to because he's always taken care of. And here is what they are doing instead. Verse six, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? So how do I come to God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? They are supposed to, but 
for real intent. And that's what we're going to look at here. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So he's asking, is God going to be pleased as you come and do all these things you're supposed to do? So for us, we could translate this into, will God be pleased with 10,000, um, well, with a thousand ministering visits, 10,000 lessons in, that in my calling in primary or Sunday school or whatever, with 15,000 coming to partake of the sacrament uh, and showing up in church and so on and so on. Is that what God's going to be pleased with? Of course, we're supposed to do those things, but it doesn't mean anything if it doesn't have what we have in verse 8. Verse 8, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? So, yes, you're supposed to do those other things, but what does he really want from you? To do justly, to love mercy, and that's the word is chesed there, all right? So we'll come back to it, and to walk humbly with thy God. So let's look at this. To do justly, this is this justice or judgment idea that we keep talking about, to take care of others, to make things right for everybody, to make sure everyone is okay and set things right for them. So we could say this is to love others, right? To love mercy or chesed. Chesed is both our, our relationship with God and our love with God and God's love for us, and it's our relationship with each other. We receive chesed from God. We're supposed to show chesed to each other. So we, it's this vertical and horizontal. And you see it's a transition here. One is about what we do with others. The other is the next one, justice, is about what we do for others and loving others. Chesed is about being loved by God, loving God, and loving each other. And then we have, and to walk humbly with thy God. So this is about uh, accepting of God's love and his power and thus walking in a way that he would have you walk. So in other words, we could say this, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee? To love God and to love each other. To go around doing what God wants you to do because you love him and taking care of everyone because you love God and you love them. That's what God wants. And if you're doing that and going to church, and doing your ministering, then the going to church and the ministering and all these things works really, really well and is effective the way it should be. And if you're doing those other things, but not out of love of God and man, then it's like bringing a thousand rams and it doesn't really help you. That's Those are probably the most important verses in Micah. We're going to move on to a couple of verses in the last chapter in, in chapter seven. Verse seven, therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So after all these terrible things and so on that, that he's prophesying, and, and there's more images. I mean, we can't read all of them, but more images of destruction and judgment because they're not listening and heeding the prophets. And they've got some pretty good prophets here with Micah and Hosea and, and Amos and uh, Isaiah. But, I mean, they should listen to these guys, right? But they're not. But there will be those who will eventually be saved. And it's those even though everyone else is going to be destroyed, this is the group of people who will be the remnant that's that's preserved. It's those who look unto the Lord and wait for the God of salvation. So I'll read it again. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. If that's us, the world is getting wicked. It's getting crazy. It's, I mean, sometimes it's scary. As President Nelson said, maybe some days, or maybe you want to just curl up in your pajamas and ask us to be woken when the second coming has happened, right? When all of it's over. Um, but no, in the face of all of this, we need to wait on God and know that God will hear us and look unto him. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall. I shall arise. 
when I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. This is so comforting because it is crazy. And our families are going through tough things and other loved ones are going through tough things. And it will seem sometimes like we're falling and it will see sometimes like we're sitting in darkness. But we can know that God will help us arise and he will be a light to us. Let's skip down to the last few verses. And this is one of the things I love about the Old Testament. There's plenty of warning, but almost always, I think it's 12 out of the 16 uh, prophets, books of prophets, end on this kind of a message. And one of the ones that doesn't, it's because it's uh, followed by a second book uh, by that prophet that has the message of hope. So really, most of the time, it ends on this kind of a message. Verse 18, who is a God like unto thee? that pardoneth iniquity. Oh, I love that phrase. I am so grateful that I have a God that will pardon iniquity. We all have iniquity that we need to have pardoned. I am so glad we have a God that will pardon iniquity and that will pass by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Oh, thank goodness. He will pardon our iniquity and pass by our our transgression. We are the remnant that's being gathered. Now, as we continue in verse 18, He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. So God, uh, and we we saw this in Jeremiah, anger is something he he holds or keeps or does. It's a function. But then it says he is merciful in Jeremiah. Here he says he delighteth in mercy. His default is mercy. That's who he is. That's what he wants. He sometimes has to come out in judgment or anger to humble us and to set things right. But what he's wanting is to get to the mercy part. Verse 19, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. Oh, hallelujah. He will subdue our iniquities. What a powerful phrase. He will subdue our iniquities. I think this means both in terms of of subduing it so that we don't want to sin and the sins that we do, he conquers. He pays the price for it. And that will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Oh, hallelujah. All of our sins, all of our iniquities conquered and cast into the depths of the sea because he has compassion on us. Verse 20, the last verse. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. In other words, he will keep his covenant, including that part of the covenant where he has chesed on us and extends that mercy and that love to us in a powerful, powerful way. In fact, where it says he will, uh, the mercy to Abraham, the word is chesed, right? So he will perform truth, or he'll perform what he said he would to Jacob, and he will have chesed that that he promised Abraham. In other words, in the Abrahamic covenant, he promises to, to bring us the truth, and chesed, and he will do so. He'll subdue our iniquities, cast our our sins into the sea, and he will harden our iniquity and have compassion on us and save us. Thank, literally, literally, thank God for that. I am so grateful for that, and I hope that you can feel the power and the hope in that message as well.